It's a good point to start with. You know, where do you go? You know, when things are tough. I'm thinking particularly of the Australian cricket captain right now. Uh, but uh, yeah, just for you guys, uh, where do you go when things are tough? And perhaps also, helpfully, when your friends uh, see you going through tough times, where do they think you go? Or, you know, if you've got kids, uh, as things are tough, you know, that you come back from a hard day at work, where do they see you turn when things are hard? Uh, the football season has begun. My friend, this is totally tangential, but here we go for a bit of a red, you know, kind of uh, little thing here. My friend announced his fantasy football team name. Now, for some of you, that means absolutely nothing. But there he was on Facebook announcing his fantasy football team name. And he's called them Bayern Never Losing, which is probably the best pun, football pun I've ever heard. But that is no reference to the sermon, so let's quickly move on. But seriously, though, Premier League footballers, so the football season's starting... Where do they turn when things get tough? It was interesting, in the Telegraph just last week, uh, you see that footballers have been announced as the most superstitious sports people. Of all sports, they are the most superstitious. And when things get tough, Premier League footballers um, do all sorts, of, all, all sorts of things, believing that if they don't do these things, that suddenly that their performance will go down or the results won't come. I don't think they're alone. I think I'm sort of looking at some smirks at the, uh, the Americans down the front here. Yeah, baseballers, they, they do all the things, you know, do, you know. But here we go. Carlo Torre of Arsenal, he always has to be the last to get onto the pitch. Famously last season, it meant that someone who was being treated for an injury, Arsenal had only nine players on the pitch for about three minutes because he wouldn't go on the pitch because someone else was not going to go on before him. John Terry of Chelsea, very famous player, always goes to the same toilet in the Chelsea dressing room. <laughs> Gary Neville, who's a very um, well-known Manchester United and England player, went a whole season, now if you think if you're playing uh, the number of games that they do, he went a whole season without ever changing his boots. They were in absolute shreds come the end of the season. And, and pre- and post-match, he did a whole bunch of other stuff as well, believing that if he weren't to do this, it would jeopardise results, his performance. Never changed his belt, never changed his aftershave. He did a whole huge, a huge number of things. Where does my help come from, the psalmist writes today? And the Premier League footballer would, uh, would announce to you, well, from doing a whole bunch of superstitious, repetitious things in my life. And it is absolute nonsense, as we know. But are they alone? Of course not. People look to an all, all manner of places, to all kinds of people, to all kinds of philosophies, to all kinds of gods for help. The same was true when the psalmist wrote this psalm that we're looking at today. And people do so because I think the reality is not that the world feels safe to us. So nearly all, to varying degrees, turn somewhere for help. Because life and our circumstances can feel pretty rotten at times. Now, where we turn may differ, but the majority turn. You see, the atheist is a rare breed when they say, oh, there's nowhere to turn. You know, I, I'm, well, they do turn, they actually turn to themselves. They just say, I'm the only way, I'm the only place I can turn to. But they are a minority view. Because the majority in times of trouble needing help turns somewhere. Why, though? Because we live, and humanity has always lived, in a dangerous world to a degree. 
We live in a world that broadcasts the heart of humanity. And at times it can make us shiver, can't it? Think of what we see in the news right now. Open the paper, look on the TV. What do we see? We supposedly live in this sophisticated, modern, enlightened world. And yet, we see children being murdered on the streets. Even sometimes by other children. We see children being mothered, uh, murdered in their mother's wounds and their body parts being stolen and sold. Disease is rife, killing thousands upon thousands of people. We see in West Africa it's killed 11,000 people, Ebola, over the last year or so. Yeah, we've got uh, a somewhat control over that now, but it will just happen somewhere else with a different strain, a different disease. Genocide is in the news again. It's nothing new. We're just becoming more proficient, more efficient at it. Now, do we need help? As the psalmist cries out in this, uh, the early verses. Well, maybe that we, we look at those examples and we think, well, that's just a bit removed, a bit detached. Because we, lived in, we live in a, a very lovely place, sanitised southwest London, and it's a huge privilege. But what about closer to home? We'll be driving through Calais tomorrow. The immigration issues only 26 miles off our shores. What about the wealth and food distribution inequalities that we see around the world? We must not be naive to think, and even we've seen in the broadsheets this week, that actually what we've seen over the last 100 or 200 years of empires like Britain and America and so on growing, that they will not be crushed over the next 100 years or more. As people try more and more to get a taste of what we've experienced over the last hundred years, we won't cope with the weight and the pressure of it. Or we could get even more personal. What about pornography? Is there anything more destructive in our culture today? Do we need help? As the psalmist says, where do we turn when we do need help? What about the big reality? The one that we all know at some points. Where do we turn then? Where does our help come from at that moment? As we take our last breath, will we put our trust in which toilet we've been to? Or what belt we're wearing? Well, that's what the footballers might tell you. Of course not. We won't do that. But where does our help come from? Is there any help? The psalmist here, and it's, it's a beautiful psalm, isn't it? It's incredibly simple. Uh, he is a popular song that many of us will know, but he is clear that he needs help, isn't he? In verse 1. And he can obtain that help. And what we know is a, a kind of a watchful care from God. It comes from that singular source. It is from God, the Lord. The Creator Lord. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 if we can. Let me read them out again, just so we refresh our minds. I lift my eyes up to the hills... Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. There really is just a kind of one major point today, and that is this. It's not on the screen, it's not on the sheets, but it's my help comes from the creator Lord. My help comes from the creator Lord. Now, historically, because of various translations of this, often people reading this psalm have thought, I'm in trouble Things are kind of going a bit rough in my life. I, I need to go somewhere. I, I need to go and find some hills to gaze upon the beauty of creation. That will help. It might do to a degree. 
Sometimes it was thought that help comes from the hills, hence why the National Trust, for example, in this country actually does look after a number of hills or mountaintops for the very reason, for this very reason. But going for a walk in the Lake District is not the solution. And it's easy to see in our translation simply because verse 1 comes in the interrogative to M, so that is, it's a question spelt out for us. The hills mentioned are actually more the problem in verse 1. The psalmist who is writing this song, he's actually on his way. He's ascending towards Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And it's an intimidating journey. It could even be fraught with danger. There could be robbers and bandits on the way. He's rightly concerned as he's going about his, what we would call, a pilgrimage. He's saying, where's my help going to come from on this journey? Now, Psalm 21, 121, let me give you a bit of uh, kind of small context if I can. It sits within a special songbook called the Song of Ascents. There's 15 songs, and you'll see them in the little um, superscription at the beginning. The little verse naught, essentially, you'll see it says a Song of Ascents. And, and they are from 120 to 134 in the Psalms. And what they do is they describe various spiritual experiences on this ascent to Mount Zion, on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they've been put together as a hymn book, a special hymn book in a sense. They act as a spiritual guide to those on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Or, if you like, on our pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem. These songs, these songs of ascent, follow a pilgrim through that journey. And the song, the song book begins, in Psalm 120, with a very low point. The psalmist is in real despair. Very low. But then Psalm 134, if you go to it, you'll see the psalmist is praising God. It's a great song of praise and delight in who God is. It's a great movement throughout these uh, Song of Ascents. They're a great collection. Why don't you read them when you get home? Great, uh, real encouragement. But they really do express the full kind of orbed, kind of scale of human emotions and experiences. But here in Psalm 121, the major concern in the song is actually just survival. He needs help in his journey, in his ascent to Jerusalem. So essentially, a a point for us is, how are we going to make progress? How are we going to survive tomorrow at work, in the Christian life, in our witness for Christ? And the psalm begins with a voice of nervousness. So do you see it? He lifts his eyes to the path that he's got to tread on his way up to Jerusalem. And where's his help going to come from, he says. Question. He's worried. And he's fearful. As you might be, to a degree. But he knows, he recalls, and he trusts and he sings. My help comes from the Lord, the Creator. He, you see, he may be young in his faith, as you may be too, but he, but he knows that is the place he goes. He can trust God who made the heaven and earth, who sustains stars and planets. He knows his help comes from the Lord. He understands in simple terms, it's bold terms though, that God will protect him. Whatever the robbers, the bandits, whatever the journey throws at him. God is both the Lord there, that is Lord in the capital, so again that's the covenant name, the covenant promise-keeping God. 
He's protected his people throughout salvation history. Uh, Despite them not not deserving it, he trusts the Lord. He also trusts the maker, the creator there, the one who protects and sustains our every breath. And you might look at his comment there in verse 1 and 2 and you think, that's pretty simple. It is. It is a simple faith at this, this moment. But he is like so many who look beyond themselves for protection. Oh, whether like, you know, the footballers and their silly superstitions, or as would have been in his time, the pagan, the heathen, as you might de- describe them, who would surround themselves with religion. You know, things haven't changed much, have they? You can go to all sorts of places around the world and you see people trusting in all manner of things for their protection, for their help. If you go to, you know, to the Far East, you'll see people having little shrines in all the kind of Eastern religions. Little kind of candles lit in windows for protection of family past family members and present family members. In the developed West, we're much more private but you would be amazed. As you know, I was recently visiting a friend of ours um, who was in St. George's Hospital who sadly died. But word got around on the ward that I was the church minister. And it was interesting how people then suddenly wanted to chat very, very quickly. As they got diagnosis and prognosis from the doctors, they, they realised they might not have very long. They, they wanted to chat. Lots of them did. They recognise their need. They see their need for help and protection, especially on their deathbed. Where does our help come from? See, the psalmist is right. His help doesn't come from a God who lives on a hill. His help comes from a God who made the hills, all the hills, all the creation. So the situation of this psalm in verse 1 and 2 is you've got this young pilgrim. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He's ascending up to Mount Zion. And he trusts the creator Lord. But beside him is another. There's another voice in the psalm. Did you spot it as he changes from the first person in verse 1 and 2 into verse 3? You see, I lift my eyes up. Where does my help come from? First person. But verse 3 is another voice. He will not let your foot slip. There seems to be a mature, more mature believer speaking to this young pilgrim out, the, out of the richness of his experience. He knows what it is to trust God. He's, he's done this walk before. He knows what to do. <coughs> so he begins to deepen the understanding of the one looking for help in verse 1 and 2. And he opens his eyes. God isn't just the God of heaven, uh, the, the powerful creator Lord. Now he enriches his understanding and says, no, he's the God who watches over you. Not just watches you, distant, removed, no, but watches over you. It's close, it's personal. It's a watchful, loving care. That is what the person of verse 1 and 2 is introduced to as we now go through this psalm. I remember when we first had our boys, uh, dads do this, but we never tell anyone that we do. So you, you have your children and then you, know, you put them to bed and you make sure everything's right. You do the kind of, yes, that's ready, that's done, bottle, yeah. Um, but then once you've done that, you just sort of stand back and you see your precious little bundle. You never tell anyone. And you look at them. You watch over them. You gaze at them. 
and you marvel at them. Oh, you never tell anyone. Sorry, Dad, I've just spoiled all the thunder there. But you, know, you do it because it's just the way that you express your love for, to this little bundle. And kind of that's what's happening here. We're being introduced to the Lord, the Creator, the big majestic God, who lovingly and watchfully cares for his children. He watches over them. What we see here in Psalm 121 is the experienced believer encouraging the young believer to come in, to to know this, to experience this, to, to feel this in a sense that God loves him, watches over him, is close to him. God does this in three ways. Uh, and I've nicked this from a commentator. I thought it was really, really helpful. He does it without interruption in verse 3 and 4, without exception in verse 5 to 6, and without limitation in verse 7 to 8. We're going to quickly run through each of those. So my help comes from the Creator Lord, verse 1 and 2, and then he, he kind of spells it out. It goes deeper. Firstly, verse 3 to 4, he does it without interruption. Let's look at those verses again. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I got some uh, new shoes recently. I got some proper shoes. Like, you know, some like business shoes with kind of leather soles. And I have to say, they're probably the most scary things that I've ever put on in my life. I was walking along the concourse of Victoria Station earlier this week. And I fell completely on my backside, much to the hilarity of everyone surrounding me. It was like walking with ice skates uh, across the, uh, the concourse. They are absolutely lethal, new leather-soled shoes. But the picture of verse 3 is someone climbing up a hill. There's, there's an unsteadiness to their, foot, to their footholds, isn't it? And it's very easy to understand the picture. There's nothing complicated here. You know what it's like when your foot slips. Whether it's on ice or with new crazy shoes on. But the scene is not perilous. There isn't a whiff of danger here, is there? Why? For though there's the potential in this life of peril, the picture is of God. This loving, watchful Lord who provides continuous support. And it's without interruption. Never going to slumber, never going to sleep. The experienced pilgrim is saying to this young believer beside him, he will not let your foot slip. Trust in him, the Lord. The one who, he's not just the one who flung stars into the space, he's right there, close. And he will do this without interruption. He's saying what you need is not the God of infinite power, you do, but you also need the God of infinite care who's able to watch over you and who will pursue you, even when you're running away. The Lord, we see, never slumbers. He never sleeps. Though he may appear to do so, which is probably what you're thinking right now, there will be times when you feel that God is so far removed from you. But the reality is that he is ever so close. This imminence or this closeness of God is probably the most easily understood in the time when Jesus was sleeping through the storm um, in the boat. Do you remember that with his disciples? They were terrified and Jesus was resting. He was, you know, he was in slumber, he was sleeping, yes. They thought they would die. And they, but despite Jesus being so deeply asleep, he was still upholding the universe. 
The disciples said, you don't care. And Jesus simply replied, why are you so fearful? The implication is, I might appear to be asleep, but I'm still doing everything. I'm still upholding everything. You're safe. And likewise here, this young pilgrim is being assured that God's loving, watchful care is without interruption. He's not saying that you will always understand why the circumstances of your life feel so painful at that moment. That that God feels so distant. You may not have the, the clarity of vision of that circumstance. You might not get it. Our perception can be very skewed at times, can't it? But what we know and the assurance of God's word again and again, and what this more experienced believer beside this young pilgrim is assuring Mob is saying, God's not, God's not gone anywhere. His watchful, loving care is there without interruption. He will not neither, he will neither slumber, slumber nor sleep. Secondly, he does so without exception. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. These are brilliant verses. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. I can't tell you what comfort these have been to me over uh, the years and continue to be. They're they're kind of like one of those old little blankets of truth, aren't they, which you come back to uh, when you're a bit of a dribbling wreck. They are for the times when you kind of say, well, I know God's word says this, but you know those times when you feel that? Oh, I, I've read this truth and uh, I understood it many times in my life. But right now, really? Those times where we neither feel safe or our circumstances look safe or are pleasing to us. At those times, our thinking, uh, it can become completely illogical, can't it? We know that God sustains the worlds, the stars and the planets and gives us our every breath. But in the heat of the moment, we suddenly begin to think something like this. I know you're that big. I know you're that great. But yet, have you seen the size of the circumstance that I'm going through in my life, God, right now? You possibly can't cope. And we know it's not logical. It's not rational. And what the psalmist is practically speaking about here is is just probably sunstroke. On the moon by night, it was the moon by night was just understood as a kind of the place of danger, essentially. The word lunatic is related to the Latin word luna, simply because people believe that you could be affected in that way by the moon at night. See, the psalmist is saying something incredibly practical here. The hottest trials of the day and also the terrors that we can all know at night. God is able to watch over you even in those circumstances. His care is not removed. See, one of the most compelling things that many of us would testify to as Christians here today is that the Bible isn't removed from the realities of our lives. It doesn't run away from you know, the toughness of our circumstances and our, how we understand them. It's, dis, it's not disconnected, is it, to what we feel and what we know and experience. And for example, nighttime, for some people, can be the loneliest, most terrifying time. Going to bed lying restlessly tormented by the problems that we experience 
And they just seem to grow, don't they, at night time? As we try to sleep. The point here is this. God is a shade in those times. If we trust in the Lord, there's nothing that can penetrate his care. No harm, it says. No evil, essentially, will get you. He isn't saying that you won't get hurt. You must understand that. Sunstroke or troubles at night were realities of life then, and they are today. We are not immune from trials. The rest of the Bible speaks very clearly about that. But no harm, no lasting eternal harm will befall you. You are safe, is what the psalm is saying. It's interesting that the sun and the moon were always what the pagan of that time, the heathen, uh, looked to to worship because they feared them. They feared them. The sun was an enemy because of sunstroke and the moon was the source of lunacy, so they thought. Uh, And we may see that as primitive. But I looked on the internet this week, and the internet obviously speaks truth all the time. But it still says that 30% of this country still look to the stars for direction. The pagan and the heathen may have looked to the sun and the moon for direction and to worship them, but still 30% of the people that you work and live amongst look to the stars for their direction in horoscopes. Where does our help come from? Not there, but from the creator of all the stars, the Lord whose loving care is without interruption and also without exception. He watches over you, always in every circumstance, and he is the shade at your right hand. And therefore, even the most powerful things, the the things that people even turn to to worship, the sun and the moon. The truth here is that the psalm is saying, they will not harm you. We need this loving, watchful care of the Lord. We live in a a dangerous world to to a degree and political figures do not have all the answers as we see again and again. You see Donald Trump in his his interviews over the last week. Americans are proud of this moment. Yeah, he thinks that his answer to everything uh, seems to be, let's build a wall. Build a wall. Yeah, however you pronounce it. We can laugh. But we thought the establishment of the, uh, the League of Nations would be the solution to our problems. It wasn't. Greece thought the European Union would be the answer to their problems. It hasn't been. Germany thought that Hitler was the answer to their problems, and he was. He brought them out of an economic depression of the 30s better than any other world leader. Way better than America, and way better than many others. But then look what happened. Where do we turn to when things get tough? Political leaders? Family, friends, loved ones? We do to a degree. But when things get really tough, we need to turn to the Lord who will be there without interruption and without exception. And lastly, very briefly, the last couple of verses, without limitation. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This isn't complicated, is it? 
And therefore it should be a great joy to us. The point of these last two verses is that there will never be a moment when this wonderful promise will will not come to pass. The Lord will keep you in his watchful, loving care, both now and forevermore. You never have to doubt that. His loving, watchful care is without limitation. Does that mean you'll never experience pain or go through a trial and things be tough? No, of course not. Does that mean as a Christian you're immune from the trials and the sufferings in this life? No. But it does mean that you're safe. That no harm will befall you in that eternal sense. You may be scorched by the sun, driven mad by the moon of your life. And of course that will be different for every single one of us. And each of our trials and our struggles will be different, but some Sorry, some will be as a result of our circumstances and some will be hidden in our hearts and minds. But whatever we lift our eyes up to, whatever the hill is, the struggle, the trial, the encouragement here in this psalm is to sing with faith, trusting in the creator covenant Lord whose watchful care will be there without exception, without interruption and without limitation. And if you feel right now weak, heavy burdened, the great old hymn with a load of care, what do we need to do? We need to turn back to the Lord, begin to nourish our faith in the God who's the shade at your right hand. The truth of this psalm is really, really simple. It speaks plainly about the God in whom many of us trust. But we must not remain stagnant and think, oh yeah, we knew that. That's a simple thing. We must grow and nourish our faith to be prepared for the times where we really, really, really need to recognise the covenant Lord and the shade of his right, at our right hand. Let me conclude, if I can. I've not done much kind of uh, looking at other parts of the Bible to kind of apply this, but let me, if I can, just turn to a couple of verses in Luke 21. Because I think Jesus there spells out the application and the reality of this psalm. Luke 21, verse 16 and 17. And again, it might seem uh, overly harsh. But Jesus spells out the reality for his disciples, for his followers, when he was teaching them. And he says this. The terms are extreme, but you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Now, praise be to God that we don't experience that right now, but many of our brothers and sisters around the world do. Verse 17, everyone will hate you because of me. Hate's a strong word, but they might ostracize. But not a hair of your head will perish. You will not be harmed in that sense. Therefore, 19, stand firm and you will win life. My friends, there will be trials. The sun and the moon of your life could hurt you, but not a hair of your head will perish. That is, the Lord will keep you from all harm. Not from every difficulty, but from ultimate difficulty. There is the loving care of a covenant Lord in this simple psalm. And it has been secured in the life and the death and the resurrection of the ultimate pilgrim. Who pilgrimed 
to ultimate harm so that we might be kept from it. Let's give thanks to him now as we pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for those of us right now who do feel, as this young pilgrim did, that we need help, that we are struggling, and as we look to years going forward, we think, oh, I'm not sure I can cope. Please help us to to trust these words, to trust in your covenant, promise-keeping, watchful, loving care. You've proven yourself throughout generations in our lives and in those around us. And yet we know that even us, we struggle to believe these words to be true on, at times. So please help us now to, if you'd like, to, to plant these words deep into each of us. That we might know your watchful, loving care. That, that wonderful, life-giving shade that no harm will come our way in that ultimate sense. Thank you that you watch over our lives. You're not distant, you're not removed. Help us to know that fatherly, tender, compassionate love. We pray that in your son's name. Amen. We're going to uh, share the Lord's Supper together now. Um, as we do in the church once a month, in our prayer meetings also once a month. It's right before we do so that uh, 